This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, hello. It's lovely to have your company today for The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. Rabobank is predicting that China's record beef consumption is going to continue to rise this year. And with a question mark over Brazil, what could that mean for Australian producers? I'll get into that shortly. And speaking of cattle, what effect has falling cattle prices had on the bull market? I think it'll be a really interesting thing to watch and see it how, how it unfolds with um, you know producers out there that have probably been able to sell cattle at higher prices and whether or not the income in their pocket means that they'll still be chasing bulls. We'll have more on that soon and a look at some of the very high prices that have been paid interstate as well. But first up today, the Australian Livestock Exporters Council says the federal government's policy to end the live sheep trade sets an alarming precedent for all agricultural industries. Alex says this is a red line issue and the ag sector will unite to fight it. Mark Harvey Sutton is the council's CEO and he says the policy on the live sheep trade must change before another ag industry finds itself on the chopping block. The reason that it should be changed is because it sets an alarming precedent for all of agriculture. We've been talking to groups from right across the agricultural spectrum and they acknowledge the reform that the live sheep industry has gone through and where they see this as a red line issue is the precedent that an industry can be shut down for purely political purposes and that that alarms the industry. So which other industries are sort of... Uh, you're talking to and having those sort of concerns that, you know, if it it can happen for one industry, it can certainly happen to another one down the track. Every livestock industry in Australia, uh, the National Farmers Federation, this is, uh, it's been made very clear to me that this is a a unity issue. Uh, We are unified as a sector on this because of that precedent. With your discussions with other agricultural industries, livestock industries, the National Farmers Federation. Are you encouraging those groups to step forward and and join the fight with you publicly, more publicly? Absolutely, and they will be. I can give you that assurance. Murray Watt made it pretty clear uh, in Senate estimates. I mean, he used the word, you know, the industry's lost its social licence, and he's he's using language that very much uh, appears that the decision has been made and this transition is now underway. But still you see you see some light there. Oh, look, the Minister has a commitment to carry out and uh, we've made it very clear to him that despite that commitment that he has uh, and the, the decision of Labor to carry forward this policy, we will be fighting against this policy. Uh, and the reason I say there's light at the end of the tunnel is because we have the facts on our side, Belinda, And, you know, I note those comments around social licence. The challenge with that is who determines what a social licence is? Where is the red line? Where is the point where that tips over and it becomes an issue that you go, well, let's shut down an industry? You know, it's, it's very intangible. And this is what industries are worried about because there is no livestock industry and I'm not meaning to gild the lily here, but there is no livestock industry in Australia or other agricultural industries 
that has had not had some form of social license challenge. However, what industries must do is address those challenges in order to retain that social license. Our industry has done that. Okay, so is legal action against the federal government a possibility further down the track if this proceeds? Look, we're not ruling out any option. As I've said, we will fight this policy all the way. So despite the fact that this advisory group or working group, whatever, to transition out of the live sheep trade is going to be announced any day now by the sounds of things, that doesn't deter you at all in your argument, your quest to see a future for this industry? I I always see a future for this industry. I wouldn't do this job if I didn't see a future for the industry. I believe in the industry. And the reason I believe in the industry is the results and the reform that the industry has seen. I mean, we have not had a reportable mortality incident since 2018. We are seeing record low mortality levels. And I know people will say, well, is mortality the best measure, but it's the most objective one that we have. And the performance of the industry has been simply outstanding. So to follow through with the policy like this sends a signal to all agricultural industries that you can do absolutely everything that is asked of you. You can reform, you can become the best in the world, but we will still shut you down because it's politically expedient to do so. And that, that's what troubles me. And no, I'm not deterred because we will, we will engage with that consultation process meaningfully. But the one thing that we will not be contemplating is a discussion about transition and we will be utilising that consultation process to explain why this policy is wrong and why it's wrong for all of agriculture. Mark Harvey Sutton, CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, speaking with Belinda Varishgetti. Do you take the same position that this is a red line issue and the ag set, all of ag needs to fight this? Or is this a particular case and uh, the other industries that perhaps also are affected by social licence uh, are, are not really uh, involved in this and, and need to work on their own industry? I'd be interested to hear what you think. Text me 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two. Speaking of livestock, China imported a record amount of beef last year, buying more than 2.6 million tonnes from nations around the world. Now, in its global beef quarterly report, Rubberbank predicts China's record beef consumption is going to continue this year or even rise, presenting opportunities for Australia's beef industry. Matt Brand spoke with analyst Angus Gidley-Baird. General consumption in China, we think, is going to improve. The relaxation of the COVID restrictions late last year, we believe, should lead to to those consumers sort of becoming a little bit more active again. But there are still some question marks around, you know, the economy there and how much it recovers. So we're expecting positive signs out of China, but we're just not expecting the same sort of growth that we've seen in previous years uh, in China. Still, though, if it's bigger than last year, that's a lot of beef. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a huge volume into that market. Brazil sent 1.1 million tonnes over there last year, which I think is the biggest protein trade in the world. And yeah, it's it's a massive market. It does have an ability to to influence that global trade, given the the volumes in and out of that market. Brazil has been the biggest supplier of beef into China, but not right now as we speak. Uh, What is the latest information you've heard on that BSE case? 
Yeah, so as of last week, the Brazilian government announced that they had that atypical case and subsequently suspended their exports to China as per their trade protocols. So uh, they'll be working through that. How long is probably the question. Uh, They'll be suspended from that market. We did see a similar thing happen back in 2021, September 2021, and they reopened the trade in December 2021. So Possibly this could be a month, a couple of months before the trade resumes. But yeah, with, with that large volume, no one's going to be able to replace the volume. No one, We don't have a spare 1.1 million tonnes of beef floating around the world at the moment. So it will provide positive upside to, to prices. We did see last time that happened in 2021, we did see Australia's exports to China increase. That increased by about 25% compared to the same period in 2020. And we saw the per unit export prices to, to China lift as well. They lifted about 18%. So it, it should provide some positive upside, but I think it'll probably be something that'll be resolved relatively quickly. You know, both parties can't afford to have that trade suspended for a long period of time. So I think they'll work through it and Brazil will go back to sending product into China, but it does provide a bit of positive upside for Australia. Uh, the tests aren't back yet from Canada. Is that right? I haven't seen anything around the formal test results. So yeah, still waiting on that. The the presumption is that it's an atypical case and, and that we'll be able to resolve it fairly quickly. And there's a lot of reporting and speculation around whether China might lift suspensions on some Australian abattoirs. Have you heard any any news in that space? No, I haven't heard any news in that space. But I mean, yeah, it, it definitely is a more positive climate. We've got, you know, Chinese and Australian ministers meeting, you know, favourable indications in terms of some of our other trade with coal. And uh, I know the, the, the guys were, were getting excited that they might be able to resume trade into there. We had a change in the import requirements from China that's no longer requiring those COVID inspections at ports. So things becoming a little bit easier. The relationship's becoming a little bit better. This situation with Brazil and some shortage of product, you know, all those things are positives but I think we'll probably just wait and see to see how things progress in terms of those uh, export licences being re-established. Angus Gidley-Baird, Senior Animal Proteins Analyst, speaking with Matt Bran there. And while we're talking livestock, cattle in particular, bull prices across Australia have been high for quite some time with top-tier animals going for six figures. But why pay that much for a bull and will prices stay this high? Now, South Australian bull sales are underway, but uh, some of the big sales have taken place in Queensland. So Megan Hughes has this story. When the first bid on the bull Ashley Kirk had his heart set on was for $100,000, he knew he'd be in for a fight. But the central Queensland stud owner prevailed, partnering with another local Brahmin stud to place the winning bid at an eye-watering $200,000. Yeah, we were lucky enough. Yeah, it only takes two to tango, but we were lucky to, to secure him. Yeah, the, the first bid for him was 100000 so um, that took people back. And then, yeah, we came in at the end and were lucky enough to, to get him at that price. Now, the bull named Fairy Springs Capitalist calls Rockley Brahmins at Maura in central Queensland home. And a bull at this price is expected to pull its weight. And Mr Kirk has big plans to cash in on his investment. So straight after the run, we, we collected him. Yeah, we got good quality semen, very good quality semen out of him. So we've 
naturally made at him. He's done a season and then we've also used him in IVF and we've got confirmed pregnancies coming by him out of some of our top producing cows. So um, very excited, yeah. We'll have calves in the next probably four four to six six months. So, yeah, it's all coming together and we'll hopefully get a return on investment with him. And in terms of the semen itself, will you just keep that for, you know, your operation or is that something you'll look to sell and potentially export? Yeah, there's certainly yeah potential export. We'll keep it domestically ourselves and, and just monitor that as we go. Um, certainly no plans in the near future to, to um, sell any domestically, but internationally, yeah, we'd love to... Um, yeah, get that bull on the market and, and, and target some of those countries like the US and South Africa and countries that, yeah, are looking for homozygous polygenetics. But why spend that much on a bull in the first place? Mr Kirk explains what he was looking for. Very good temperament, being homozygous polled, good underline, structurally correct, good bone, it was the right colour, good testicles, good semen. So he's, yeah, ticked, ticked a lot of the boxes that we were looking for. Um, the mother had had on a third calf, so that was important to us, the fertility side as well, just a complete package, we thought. Another CQ stud owner, Annalie Godwin, runs Black Label Brangus and works for her parents' operation, Godwin Cattle Company. Together they bought Brangus Bull Lunar Roads for $110,000. For my side of things, I'm just going to use him as a stud sire over my cows. Um, we will eventually collect him, hopefully, and... Sort of see, we haven't really decided whether we'll sell semen yet. It's poss- definitely a possibility in the future, but at the moment we want to get ca- our own calves on the ground, see how he forms, see how he goes, make sure everything's correct. We're just, yeah, just excited to have him around at the moment. Talk me through the, you know, trying to figure out the decision whether or not to, to sell his semen. Would you be looking at domestic sales or, or exporting? Uh, potentially both. Um, export is something that I myself don't know much about. It's something I have to do a bit of research on. But to think about, we obviously want people to use these genetics and enhance their own herd. But we, we just want to see how he goes himself. We want to get some females on the ground by him. You know, we don't want to flood the market with his genetics because that will potentially decrease his value. We want to yeah, we want to get the first bulls out there sort of thing, not to be selfish, and then, yeah, potentially from there, see how they go and then sell his semen from there. Black Label Brangus owner Annalie Godwin. Selling semen can be incredibly profitable. Recently, semen from Australia's most expensive bull sold for $24,000. Bull prices themselves have had a pretty good run. Between 2018 and 2022, they rose 70 to 80%. Rabobank senior analyst Angus Gidley-Baird said cattle prices have dipped since their massive highs, but it's uncertain whether bull prices will follow suit. Quite a dramatic drop in cattle prices. You'd probably have to expect that the same sort of sentiment would flow through to bull prices and we'll see prices ease off. But I think it'll be a really interesting thing to watch and see it how, how it unfolds with um, you know producers out there that have probably been able to sell cattle at higher prices and whether or not the income in their pocket means that they'll still be chasing bulls whether we see a bit of a a separation and we see some of those you know the really good bulls continue to be chased and and higher prices for them but then the lower quality ones maybe there's less demand for them you know question around are producers going to look for the same number of bulls or maybe do they pay the same but maybe buy a couple less bulls i think we're still a bit of a way off in terms of the herd rebuild that's still on track and 
obviously with rain through Queensland in January and February, that might encourage a few people in Queensland to, to consider what they need to do for the genetics of their herd too. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It was a relatively mild start to summer. There might have been a bit more feed around, although this hot weather recently probably burnt a bit of that off. But it could be a bit of a case of quantity over quality at this time of year. That's at least one of the takeaways from a series of sheep nutrition workshops run by Mali Sustainable Farming recently. AgriPartner consultant Amish Dixon tells Eliza Berlage about weighing up feed options. Looking at some of the species that are commonplace around here, so things like veltgrass um, and lucin, but then also looking at some of the grazing crop options, so many of the cereals, canola, even lentils and lupins. So looking at what the feed value is of those different feed options at different times throughout the year. And I guess what were some of the sort of key questions that farmers had uh, at your presentations this week? I think most of the questions revolved around, um, importantly, how we actually use that information in practice. A big part of the workshops has been presenting not only the results out of those feed tests, but also how do we actually put them into practice? How do we use them to look at whether the feed might be meeting requirements for different classes of sheep or whether we need to be providing some supplementation to try and pick up production levels if that's a target for the business. And for someone who uh, wasn't already or has been thinking about getting a bit more into examining what their feed means for their sheep I guess you know what are some people missing? I think the importance of it is it starts to give us some really good information about well what are the components of nutrition that are relevant to pushing uh, different areas of production in the enterprise so it's understanding what does energy contribute to production, uh, what does protein contribute, how do we actually utilise that information to potentially maybe we're wanting to improve um, lambing rates, maybe we're wanting to improve growth rates in lambs and understanding okay well what sort of targets do we need to be achieving out of the feed for energy, for protein, for different levels of supplementation strategies as well. And so we're here in peak in South Australia today. What are some of the different, I guess, uh, comparative um, feed options in those areas? Yes, yeah, so there's some differences across those regions that are that are important to take into account. Um, certainly in Bell Reynold, we, we have a different mix of feeds. There's some some core ones there, but certainly we get into a little bit more um, some forages. We get into some shrubs. We get into some forbs and herbs and those sorts of things in the paddocks. But predominantly, we're still working with opportunities around different grasses and grazing crops and stubbles over summertime. Obviously, as we push further into sort of the the South Australian Mallee and where we are here in Peak, we start to get into a bit more of the the typical uh, sheep wheat and cropping zones, so lots of stubbles over summertime and then into some uh, sown feed options, particularly around the break of the season, and then maybe some options that are running on some of the the hill country as well, so whether that's things like veldt, primrose, all those sorts of things that can get sown in that country to to utilise that area. So understanding how they work um, has has been a a really good part of of the workshops and and how people can, can get the best out of them. AgriPartner consultant Hamish Dixon speaking with Eliza Berlage. And while she was there, Eliza spoke with one of the attendees to hear their reaction to the workshop. David Smith uh, from uh, Malitech Polmarinos at Geranium. And, uh, yeah, what did you think of the workshop today, David? It was excellent. And uh, like Hamish Dixon, he's a fantastic presenter and I just love the way he thinks. And, uh, yeah, it was really, really worthwhile. And what were some of the your key takeaways or things that you may be thinking about uh, trying to implement or work out in your own operations? Probably just working out oh, the, the megajoules and energy and protein and uh, yeah, just getting that balance right in our, in our mix because uh, we actually don't do a lot of uh, hand feeding so you have to, maybe we should be measuring more of our pastures to see what they really do contain and then 
chopping it up. And so what sort of feed do you have at your place? Veldt grass, lucerne and stubbles from the crops. And how's your season been? We've had a fantastic season actually this last one so if it was rained like this much every year it'd be nice. Uh, it's only just above average but the, the last 10 years before this we haven't even been average so this has been great to get sort of slightly above average and it's really showing what we can do with a bit of water. And I've heard a bit of chatter lately that you know, with a few good years, few people have been increasing their flock. Is that something you've done or are thinking of doing? No, I think we're at a optimum level at the moment, so we're just sticking with that. Uh, Angus Smith, yeah, sheep farmer. Uh, what did you think about the workshop today? Yeah, no, it was good. A lot of information there and a lot of different options and kind of working out plans from the information they provided. And what were some of the sort of key takeaways or things that you you know either have more questions about or maybe you want to try to work out if you can implement at your sheep farm? Yeah, just trying to work out what they've currently got in the paddock and what the energy requirements are above that. Yeah, just trying to work out where we're at and how we can go about getting making sure our users are getting what they need. And where are you based and what do you know about what you currently have? Like, do you have particular mallee shrubs or particular feed around, particular crop? Uh, yeah, so we're based at Kakuma. And, yeah, I'm kind of just getting into it. My dad's yeah, kind of running the show at the moment. Yeah, we've got lots of different feed and I guess from here we're just looking at whether what we've got growing in the paddock can be used or whether we do need to look at getting some more stuff in as well. You guys do grain as well or just meat, sheep? Uh, we're Merino's um, dual purpose through Mallee Tech and, yeah, we're leasing out our cropping land currently. Angus Smith and David Smith speaking with Eliza Burlage there to find out what's coming up in weather. Senior forecaster Jenny Horvat at the Bureau of Meteorology joins me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. How are things looking? Still a bit overcast in many parts of the state? Yeah, especially for the southern parts through there. So things are pretty stable with that high-pressure system south of WA, maintaining a ridge over the south of the state. So that is directing a bit of a moist sort of south-south-easterly airstream um, across mostly the southern agricultural area and that, and that's where we're seeing a lot of that cloud still around. Um, This morning, couldn't rule out the odd spot with that but we haven't seen too much since 9am we've picked up um, 0.2 of a millimetre at Parowa and Pandana so just the odd light um, shower under that cloud not out of the question today but we're really not expecting anything too significant with that still got our high pressure system um dominating our weather for the next couple of days so it'll slowly start to drift across the bite before moving out into the Tasman Sea by Saturday so again we'll still be in this sort of southeasterly maybe we're tending a little bit more easterly airstream on Friday so still could be a bit of a cloudy start across the south and couldn't rule out a little bit of light shower activity again around some of those southern coasts on Friday morning but then as that high moves off into the into the Tasman Sea on the Saturday there those winds tending a little bit more northerly and we'll start to see our temperatures rising um, just a little bit through there could see a little bit of fog around um, first thing about the agricultural area and out in the west on Saturday morning but really we are looking at a dry day across the state on Saturday with those um, temperatures just becoming a little bit warmer and generally some light winds through there on Saturday Sunday is change day though so we'll have our northerly winds generally getting a bit warmer Um, ahead of that trough coming across from the west during the day. A little bit of uncertainty with that timing. Maybe it looks a little bit quicker coming across on Sunday than it was with some of the earlier gone. So we'll just see how that plays out. And it looks like it is going to be a bit of a gusty southwesterly change as that comes through. As far as showers go, it looks like most of that will be confined to the southern agricultural area following that change as it comes across on Sunday. And we are looking at those showers persisting early into the week across the southern agricultural 
coastal area before really contracting um, to our southern coast mid to late week. But we're not expecting too much as far as rainfall goes, especially for the next couple of days. Um, but with that system coming through on Sunday and up until midnight Monday, we are looking at rainfall totals to generally be less than a couple of millimetres across the agricultural area. We could see two to five millimetres about the southern agricultural area and couldn't rule out some isolated falls of five to 15 metres millimetres about those far southern coasts there, Cassie. Thanks for that, Jenny Horvat there with the latest in weather. And in the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. There is a slight chance of a shower in the northeast in the afternoon and evening, but basically zero chance anywhere else. But there could be a thunderstorm in the northeast and in the afternoon and evening as well. Overnight, getting down to 16 to 21 degrees. Daytime temperatures, though, still warm, mid to high 30s. Lower western will be sunny. Overnight temperatures there, getting down to 12 to 15 overnight, but during the day reaching 30 to 35 degrees. I've got more to come on The Country Hour. You're listening to Cassie Huff as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today. Now, uh, South Australia has some amazing food regions. I mean, uh, places like the Barossa or McLaren Vale are, are internationally renowned. But I'm going to tell you what a part of the southeast is doing to try and perhaps boost their profile. And speaking of food, uh, when food gets tight, do you change your buying habits? Or when, when money, I should say, gets tight, do you change your buying habits? Because, uh, I mean, there is going to be about an extra 2 billion people on the planet by 2025. So uh, you'll hear from the Fight Food Waste CRC about how they want to see Aussies change the way they buy and consume food. People do change their behaviour when food prices increase um, or when they become much more conscious about the problem. And that's what we're trying to create through what will hopefully be a nationwide consumer behaviour change campaign that starts in the coming years. Is that something that you've done in the last few months or or so with food prices getting higher and uh, just the general household budget getting tighter? Have you changed your buying habits, what you buy, where you buy, what types of food you buy? Text me 0467 or phone 1300 991. We'll take a look at that next. But first, Matt Coleman has the latest in news. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news, the state government says that railway crossings in South Australia are safe and it's up to pedestrians to act safely around them. Two pedestrians have been hit over two days this week, an 11-year-old boy on Tuesday and a 74-year-old on Wednesday, both of whom are currently in a critical condition. The Transport Minister Tom Kutzentonis says all railway crossings in SA meet national standards and people need to be more careful. A plan to build 140 electric vehicle charging stations in the state by 2024 is starting to roll out today. Twelve charging stations are now online in multiple Adelaide suburbs, as well as in the Adelaide Hills and Mount Gambier. The state government is contributing $12.5 million to the project, which is being rolled out by the RAA. And in football, Port Adelaide's bid to climb the AFLW ladder has been boosted after signing star Crows forward Ash Woodland. The 24-year-old has signed as a marquee recruit and joins 
signs under new rules designed to strengthen the newer clubs. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. There now, it's hard to believe, like I said before, that by 2050 there'll be an extra 2 billion people on the planet. And as that year nears, there's increased concern about how we're going to actually feed everyone. Now, according to Fight Food Waste Australia, Aussies need to change the way they buy and consume food if they don't want to suffer food shortages in the future. Now, this country produces a lot of food and... uh, and Basically, there is an idea that that there is enough food, it's just getting it to everyone is going to be difficult. Dr Steve Lappage is the creator and CEO of Fight Food Waste Australia and he says they're working to halve food waste by 2030. Right now, the expectations are that we've got a food shortage of 56% by 2050 to feed that population of near 10 billion. So unless we do a number of activities such as reducing food loss and waste and better utilising everything we grow through you know, circular economy principles, then we are going to struggle to feed a population of that size. What is the average home contributing to waste each year? Households in Australia currently waste 2.5 million tonnes uh, of food waste out of a total of 7.6 million tonnes per annum for the country as a whole. Uh, So it's a significant proportion, it's about a third uh, is wasted in the home. And for the average home, that equates to around two and a half, three thousand dollars worth of food or one in five shopping baskets. And really most food waste um, can be avoided, about 70 percent of the average household food waste is avoidable and it's edible. Uh, It's just a matter of managing it better. As you said, you're fighting food waste, but then you're also talking about having enough food to feed the growing population, which I assume they aren't mutually exclusive. So how do you see that coming and working together? Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the, the facts and figures uh, people may not be aware of that uh, I mentioned 7.6 million tonnes of food wasted in Australia, but globally, 31% of all food grown in the world is currently lost, which means up to the consumer or wasted by the consumer. Um, So that's a huge volume of food. We can feed the world population now and there would be nowhere in famine if we actually used all the food that we grew. Um, And if we're not managing food loss and waste into the future, we will really struggle to, uh, to feed that population of 10 billion. Fight Food Waste is working to halve food waste by 2030. How does that look? It's a really ambitious goal. It's a United Nations Sustainable Development Goal and you know, we're developing or we've created the coalition of the willing. We work with 100 different you know, industry partners on any given day um, and we've got multiple options when it comes to you know, committing to halving food waste um, in their businesses and within their sectors. Uh, how are we tracking at the moment? It is hard to tell. The problem, you know, the problem is $36 billion a year. You don't solve that with a $30 million cooperative research centre. That's a bigger problem. But we committed to achieving about a quarter of it, and we're on track for that in terms of the food waste volume reduced. But in doing that, we aim to create $2 billion worth of increased industry profitability at the same time and reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions by 44 million tonnes. Now, that's equivalent of taking about 5 million cars off the road which is significant, about 25% of the cars in Australia. So the CRC is on track, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, It's not until we do some independent benchmarking, which we do every couple of years, to see how we're tracking as a country, 
that we can tell whether you know we're 10% there or 20% there. But we've also got an increasing population. We've had a pandemic. There's lots of different issues that we're dealing with at the moment. Um, and so time will tell, but we will do that independent uh, benchmarking again uh, next year or in 2024 um, to really see how we're tracking. What impact will the globe heading into recession have and, and how will that filter, filter out? Um, it's a really interesting question. I mean, we, what we know from the United Kingdom, um, they started on this food waste journey many years before us. Um, they've got a l- program called Love Food, Hate Waste, that program had a massive impact um, and reduced food waste in the UK by about 20% very quickly during the global financial crisis, the GFC of 2010. What happens when budgets generally get tight is that people want to make more from their food. The same thing, well, what we saw during the pandemic was really interesting. Uh, Initially, there was a lot of food waste created because everyone went out and panic bought. And they did that with perishable food, and not just the non-perishable. So, you know, there was milk and bread and so on that were going to waste. And then the exact opposite happened because no one wants to go to the supermarket because that was the one place, you know, you're likely to pick up COVID. So everyone started making more from their food and increased, you know, the, the increase in websites that talk about how to make more from your food increased with, you know, 400% increase in hit rates and things like that. And then it started going back to normal again. Um, but people do change their behaviour when food prices increase um, or when they become much more conscious about the problem. And that's what we're trying to create through what will hopefully be a nationwide consumer behaviour change campaign that starts in the coming years. It's really about just making people recognise that food is precious and that we can all do our bit to reduce it. And in, in doing that, we all have our role to play in reducing climate change as well. Most people aren't really aware of the link between food waste and climate change. Globally, food waste causes about 10% of uh, human-induced climate change or greenhouse gas emissions. To put that into perspective, that's not too dissimilar to the same amount of greenhouse gases generated from road transport throughout the world. And it's six times that of the global aviation industry. So, you know, people often think of, you know, planes as really polluting you know, vehicles, and they are, but, you know, people throwing food in the bin, which creates methane, which is, you know, 25 times more powerful than carbon dioxide, you know, that in itself is a major contributor to uh, climate change, and everyone, everyone can play their role in reducing that. So if food waste goes into landfill and it decomposes without oxygen, then it creates methane. Um, Where we do something like composting and put in lots of oxygen, it breaks down, it does create some methane, but much less. So, you know, composting is far better than food waste going into landfill. Dr Steve Lappage, creator and CEO of Fight Food Waste, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris at the Evoke Ag Conference in Adelaide recently. And I'm interested to know if you've changed your buying habits due to household budget pressure or, or perhaps uh, you did it because of COVID and you just haven't gone back. I, I know I shifted to, to meal kits because when I was living by myself, uh, it, there was just too much waste. If you 
if you bought all the veggies and I found that was a way to reduce waste for me. A text in the this person who's texted in says, I don't waste one bit of food. Today I made patties with leftover veg, crumbed them and the peelings go into the garden. Double whammy there because as they were saying that uh, a compost is a good way of dealing with the, the problem that the waste also generates from a, a methane point of view. If you've got uh, a, yeah, some changes that you've made, I'd love to hear them. Text me 0467 922 or phone 1300 222 Now food miles plays a role in the uh, amount of carbon and emissions that the uh, food industry is associated with. So buying closer to home is often a good idea. The Limestone Coast is looking to become a major food destination and that's according to the Limestone Coast Food and Agribusiness Cluster which has today launched its food and beverage 10-year strategic plan. Big ticket items within the plan include investigating a shared food and manufacturing hub as well as a bespoke meat processing facility for multiple smaller scale food businesses to use. Chair of the cluster, Danielle England, says the region has unlimited potential given the right help. We're a new organisation and as we were coming together and applying for funding to get going and setting our own strategy for ourselves, it was really surprising that a region that has nearly $2 billion worth of food and agribusiness exports doesn't have a regional strategic food plan. We've got a state strategic food plan, we've got a national strategic food plan. So it was a really glaring gap and probably the first one that we saw we needed to, I guess, amend and give us direction so that we can all be pulling together. State, federal governments, agencies, private businesses, industry groups, regional organisations, so that we can continue to grow this $2 billion industry in the region. And what are some of the bigger opportunities you've identified with this plan? So we have, through the strategic planning process, we've identified five key pillars and those five key pillars around the people, the Limestone Coast workforce, business owners and operators. We identified the second pillar as being the natural environment, all our beautiful natural assets and climate and the fact that these things really do add to us being such a productive and profitable region. We also identified the need to promote the Limestone Coast as a flagship Australian food and beverage provenance region. The fourth one was around transport and infrastructure services, that it doesn't matter the size of your food and agribusiness business, you tend to struggle with that in the region and that needs to be overcome. Lastly, together building a unified, thriving and leading food and beverage industry and that's just coming together as the whole industry to support the food and beverage industry so that we can be leaders not only locally but also globally. The plan also does discuss some of the current limitations of the district that could be impacting food businesses, including accommodation for workers and uh, some facilities for businesses that they might not have access to yet. Did those come up when you were going through that process? Was that something common you heard? Yeah, absolutely. Worker accommodation, it doesn't matter whether you're large meat processors across the region, whether you're in state government, I feel like any industry event I go to at the minute, work accommodation is absolutely there, as is housing shortages across Australia. So we have got the capacity to grow, and that's why we, being food and beverage business 
resources in the Limestone Coast region. But it is things like how do we house people? How do we actually make sure they've got the training available in the region for them to meet the future demands of the industry? We've also got issues around cold store logistics that prevent businesses from growing in the region, particularly into the Melbourne and Sydney markets. But that's also an opportunity for us. The fact we sit so close to Sydney and Melbourne, the fact that we have got such a diverse range of products coming out of the region, like most of the other regions across Australia and globally do not have the diverse range of products coming out of them. You know, So the fact that we've now got this, this one plan for all agencies, all businesses to be able to work towards it actually gives us a really good starting point. So where do you start now that the plan is finished? What's, what are the first steps going to be? Well, it's really exciting as you have a look at it. We we do have our um, Proudly Limestone Coast. So we do now have a provenance brand. So at least we can tick one thing off the list. And that is really exciting. And over the next 12 months, you'll see a lot more work go into that brand and the ability for food and beverage producers to be be able to use that. We're actually working really closely with some of those bigger organisations and our local members to be able to promote the need for housing in the region, to be able to promote the continued upskilling of people in our region. It is such a large plan that we can't do it alone. All the best of luck. That was Limestone Coast Food and Agribusiness Cluster Chair Danielle England speaking with Elsie Adamo. And Tim has texted in to say, great to use food waste in composting. However, yet to see compost-type fertiliser make an impact in broadacre agriculture. Thanks for your text. You can keep the conversation coming about what you do, to what you might have done uh, when it comes to buying your, your food or where you get your food from or the type of food you buy as a result of perhaps tightening household budget. It's text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. It is a quarter to one. Celebrate Sydney World Pride 2023. Go wild, baby. Head to ABC iView for all the magic of live and proud. Sydney World Pride opening concert and the fabulous Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade. Happy Mardi Gras! And discover a world of pride with brilliant shows on ABC iView and on the ABC Listen app. Glitter, more glitter and more glitter. (laughs) Sydney World Pride 2023. Here on the ABC on digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Food and an Indigenous organisation has teamed up with the nation's largest garlic producer to grow a commercial crop smack bang in the middle of Australia. Over the last few years, the group has been trialling different varieties of garlic on a farm that's located 350 kilometres north of Alice Springs. Victoria Ellis went along to check out this year's planting, which is destined for supermarket shelves. The Alikarung Horticulture Farm is about 350 kilometres north of Alice Springs. It was established by Centre Farm Aboriginal Horticulture to provide training and employment opportunities for the local community. Tisha Corbett and Sabrina Kelly are Eluwa women who have been working on the farm. Tisha says she's learned a lot while trialling the growth of different varieties of garlic over the past four years. Get to um, learn, like learn um, how to grow and how to prepare. Yeah, so it's been good learning on, on the job. 
What sort of experiences had you had of planting and growing things before the garlic trials? Um, I didn't know anything about growing anything. Sabrina, what are some of the things that you have learnt over the last four years of the garlic trial? What sort of fertiliser we have to use for the soil and also how much water we need a day. The program has also brought the community together to work as a team. For Tisha and Sabrina, it's important because it's an opportunity to teach the next generation. Yeah, it's good. Um, it's good like for the kids to join in because they get to learn, they learn um, growing and food, you know, and what's healthy yeah. and yeah, they're and growing. Yeah. This is also part of the future yeah? Yeah. for the children to learn their children. Yeah, I'm Joe Clark. I work in Ali Karan community. Joe is an Aranda man from Central Australia. He's the farm manager. He says the first years of the trial were hit and miss, but last year was good, and this year they're hoping to better their harvest again. It is a bit exciting when you've got a semi-commercial crop ready to go, and if you'd have told me that three years ago, I would have said, uh, yeah, maybe, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to see the younger people jump on the tractors, plough the dirt, lay the sprinklers, and get an exciting three and a half hectares ready for garlic Australia. It, it makes my job worth worthwhile coming up to work every day. Well, good luck guys. Let's, fingers crossed, we'll have a lovely season. Hello, my name's Nick Diamantopoulos. I'm the CEO of Australian Garlic Producers. Usually garlic is a cooler climate crop. This is um, our most northern crop. Um, all our other crops sort of start coming in late September, October. So to be able to have garlic coming in in August and to grow garlic literally in the desert is quite unique. What does that allow producers to be able to do? Well, what it allows us, it allows us to go to market and extend our garlic season. So most other countries in the world, they, they actually harvest garlic for anywhere between three, four weeks, maybe six weeks maximum. But to be able to harvest fresh Australian garlic for a five, six-month window is just pretty well unheard of. And does that mean that Australians will be able to buy Australian garlic for longer durations of the year? That's the idea. The idea is to replace imported garlic and to have fresh Australian garlic all year round. And with our diverse climatic conditions, um, we can certainly do that. And what are some of the challenges of growing in this climate and in this soil? Look, this soil is obviously very hungry. It lacks a lot of organic material. Um, but again, you know, it's all about rebuilding the soil over, over years and um, um, good crop rotations. Um, obviously, you can also get extreme weather. Um, you can get very, very cold conditions and you can get very, very hot conditions. Um, but having said that, garlic's a pretty hardy crop and if you marry up the right variety for the right area, you're halfway there. During the trial, some centre farm workers, including Sabrina, had the opportunity to visit the Garlic Australia headquarters in Mildura. There Sabrina saw her own garlic that she grew, boxed and ready for the supermarket shelf. When they harvested the first, second garlic here and we went to that place, that um, factory, and they told us, this garlic belonged to you, and that made me happy. Sabrina and Tisha and the other Ali Karung workers are eager to sell their produce around the country. Maybe around the world, maybe too. Yeah. How does yeah. that make you feel? Proud. Um, it's proud and I'm very proud. Yeah. Oh, Tisha Colbert and Sabrina Kelly planting garlic near 
Ali Kurung with the help of Australia's largest garlic producer, Nick Diamantopoulos. Uh, they're speaking there. Finally today, the last of our SA Rural Women's Award finalists. The Kimber Local is hoping to provide regional education workshops to give people the skills and confidence to go or get back into the workforce. Kerry Cliff is the fifth finalist of the awards and while helping run the family farm, she's also co-owner and director of Air Business. Air Business aims to connect admin staff with companies remotely, meaning rural people can stay in rural communities while also learning and using their admin skills. Kerry spoke with Brooke Nindorf about what she plans to do if she wins the Rural Women's Award and how she felt when she learned she was a finalist. I certainly surprised. I didn't expect in, in the first time I've put forward a nomination to actually be you know, considered as a finalist. But a quiet pleasure that what I have always been passionate about, which is community, is, is you know, leading in the right direction for me. Tell us about Air Business and what it is. So a couple of years ago, my very corporate city-based friend um, of, of many decades, Kath, and I got together and realised there was a, a need for more virtual admin jobs in rural areas. So it's actually a, an area that has been perhaps a little not supported and also not thought about as an option. And uh, we, before COVID decided to launch Air Business and provide business admin services across all size businesses from the tiniest you know, community group up to a big corporate and in doing so create new jobs for rural women. When you say jobs, what sort of jobs would they be looking at? Well, a lot of people ask that question. Uh, they say, well, what do you do? <laughs> it's like, well, it's business administration. So that can range from newsletters and mail outs. It can be online um, managing files in, in an online environment, or it can be bookkeeping, which is the one most people are familiar with. When you, you say bookkeeping, they go, oh, yes, I know what that is. <laughs> so with most things available online now, that has, has made a business like ours possible. And I guess we have a passion about creating jobs for rural Aussies, not necessarily looking to send our business offshore. And you were saying there as well um, earlier when we were talking about there's so much paperwork and, and red tape when it comes to a lot of businesses, a lot of farming businesses. Is that the kind of thing that others can help with? It certainly is. Uh, we have people who are building their skill sets and qualifications, but they are supported by people who do have qualifications in, in the area of payroll and, and bookkeeping. So we do have our um, BAS agent registration, which we're quite excited about. And we also offer a service for workplace safety uh, and targeting farm businesses, but it's it's available for every business. So we do have a team member who is looking for clients so she can support them. So it is about um, now matching matching clients with, with our staff. The Rural Women's Award comes with a bursary for the winner. What would you look at putting that towards if you were announced as the winner come May? Certainly through the process over the last couple of years with uh, Air Business and, and taking on local people for our employees and working through what 
their needs are, um, it's become quite apparent that confidence is a huge huge issue for a lot of women and they've been out of the workforce like myself for a long time and the world has changed a lot and so they're quite nervous about taking on technology uh, and I'm not sure I have those skills. Um, How do I change from maybe a more physical job that they've had as they get older? They want to, you know, downscale their, their activity. So there are options out there and I think my plan for the bursary is to create a, a little um, pilot project, couple of workshops, series and uh, train these women in how best to put themselves back into a job market anywhere in the world basically um, but based locally. So we obviously can help some people through air business but I, I would like the bursary to be a broader you know more community-based enterprise so yeah working with a friend on that as well. What have you noticed when it comes to jobs available for particularly regional women in you know an area like Kimber? Well there's certainly a lot of underemployment in rural areas Uh, you, you look at you know there's zero unemployment almost in a place like Kimber uh but there's actually a lot of underemployment that's not recorded in statistics. So it is, I guess, starting a business has certainly shown us that there are farm women who perhaps would like to have a job. And so finding that virtual administration type work um, will suit a lot of women. Not everyone, because not everyone's into keeping the books. (laughs) So, yeah, I think, and just in doing that, they can gain in their own confidence. You've touched on this a little bit, but what is the Rural Women's Award and, and the, I guess what surrounds it, what does that, that mean to you? Um, I guess growing up as a young adult through rural youth, I had a, an amazing network of people across particularly South Australia, but across Australia. And we, um, my husband and I, valued that, all that we got from that in leadership skills and uh, I think that's what's you know, carried me right through to now. And we've, I guess we are passionate about maintaining those networks and expanding our networks. So I think for me, this is like a, a new a new little gold field, <laughs> dare I call it that, of, of women who are entrepreneurial, who are leadership um, role models who have exciting and interesting businesses and, and they can actually enhance and, and show exactly the sort of thing I'd, I'd like to share with more rural women out here that perhaps haven't been involved in an organisation like I was. Kimber Farmer and businesswoman Kerry Cliff speaking with Brooke Nynedorf and she's one of the five finalists in the SA Rural Women's Award. The winner will be awarded a $15,000 bursary to support their project, business or program that will benefit rural businesses or industries or communities and the winner will be announced in May so we will keep you up to date on how that is going but until then... We've got Sonia Feltoff with you this afternoon. Hello, Cassie. Oh, look, there's smiles all over the afternoons team today because it was four weeks ago that we first asked you to help out uh, in naming our guide dog that we're going to be following oh, over the yes, next 12 months. Oh, yes, guide dog who came in and said hello to us. Well, we had a guide dog. That wasn't going to be ours. Oh, right. Uh, and so, but ours has literally arrived this week. 
Um, it is settling into its new name. It's been chosen. You've you narrowed it down to the last three. Today you'll find out what the actual name is of this dog and meet it for the first time and find Yay, out what the next one. Because do you remember the Country Hour Guide dog, Bali? I, Bali, I do. Yeah, well, we had a K name. Strong. Yep, so you'll find out. And also we'll take a look at Australia Post today. Wonderful. Well, keep listening to ABC Local Radio. Great story coming up. It's approaching 1 o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.